I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report. And I'm Megan Kamrick with New Mexico PBS. And this is Growing Forward, a podcast about cannabis in New Mexico. This week, we'll be looking at the business side of things. It wasn't until I stepped into cannabis that I really started to understand the conversations that were happening around the country and the world as to how women are treated in industries. And it's been challenging and it is, it's changed me. There are more than two dozen cannabis production companies in New Mexico, plus a long list of manufacturers. Instead of talking to every single producer and manufacturer, we decided to talk to some of the more high-profile producers. Of course, one of the most high-profile producers is Pure Life, and that's because of its CEO, Darren White. Attention all units, respond to Central and Broadway, reference a large crowd, it's a war on drugs. Okay. So there's this 1990s video, cops are rolling up in cruisers, they're pulling guns out, no wait, they're pulling out a keyboard and they're singing. Andy, what is this? Well, that's Darren White when he was a police officer with the Albuquerque Police Department. My understanding setting this up is that the Albuquerque Police Department put together a band of officers called The Force. And a very hallmark moment of the 1990s is this Just Say No campaign. So White made a reputation for himself as staunchly against legalization. He would go on to become the state's public safety secretary under then-Governor Gary Johnson. He eventually resigned from that position, publicly denouncing Johnson's stance on cannabis legalization and decriminalization. White remained in the headlines for several years as he went on to become the Bernalillo County Sheriff, ran for U.S. Senate, and eventually became the head of public safety in Albuquerque under then-Mayor Richard Berry. He faced scrutiny when his wife was involved in a car crash, and White showed up on the scene to take her to the hospital before officers had a chance to speak with her. He found himself under more scrutiny about five years ago when it was revealed the former law enforcement officer with a hard-nosed view on drugs was the head of a medical cannabis producer. There are still plenty of people who are critical of White, but now he speaks openly about his 180 on cannabis. For me, I left law enforcement in 2011 and I opened up a security consulting business. While I was doing that, I was confronted by a few friends that I know. They asked me if I would do the security aspect of of an application. And I said, sure, I look at it. And, And also kind of in the same time, Andy, I've been struggling with chronic pain, and I've been on a chronic pain management system for, it's going on 20 years now. I've had back surgery. I've had extensive work done on my knee over the last 30-some years, and I just actually had it replaced. I had a couple of difficult times with it, and I started using a cream that a friend gave me. I was very skeptical of it. I didn't want to do it at first, but, you know, the only alternative for somebody like me was opioids. I mean, that's really all there was. And so I tried it and it worked. (laughs) It worked. Um, It helped me a lot, but I I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to get a card and I did. I went and I got a card and I became a patient and I started using it that way. So obviously, you know, like many, your, your views have shifted on this. What kind of insights can you share with people that might be a little bit iffy on this whole program? You know, look, I I had a lot of friends over the years that, you know, use cannabis. We all do. It'd be ridiculous to suggest otherwise. I had a responsibility to uphold the law, and I did. 
and I was always when I'd heard the whole debate about medical cannabis, I was always very skeptical of that as well. And obviously the eye-opening experience for me was when it worked and then realizing I was wrong. I was just wrong about it. It really does help a lot of people and their quality of life. You know, it's funny, Andy, you say it because it's like nobody gave a damn about the fact that I was prescribed opioids. Nobody cared. I mean, you know, I could have gotten as much as I wanted for as bad as my injuries are. And it's a hell of a lot more dangerous taking a cocktail of these painkillers than it is smoking some weed. You, as you say, were in law enforcement for a long time. How do you, how do you think that our previous harsher drug laws and enforcement of them hurt the community? What did you see in that? Well, you know, it, it's, Megan, that's interesting because I, I hate to say this, I'm, I'm old enough to rem when I started in Houston, I was in the middle of that crack war and it was devastating some of those communities. And being somebody that's been an elected official too, I get it, we overreact to everything we do. But I also know they were plagued with, they, they saw people were dying, they needed to do something and they went too far. The thing that we haven't done in this country and we need to do right now is we need to start treating people who come into our system regardless of what it is. There isn't a prison cell, there isn't a jail cell in this country, regardless of what the drug is, that will shake their addiction. We better start coming to an understanding of that. When I hear, you know, I know lawmakers don't like to earmark and do set-asides, but if we do do a recreational model, I fully support that we, we look at using some of that money for treatment options for people because they come out, some of them, my God, some of them, they, they, they never even skip a beat. There's just as much, the drugs are just as plentiful in some of our jails and prisons than there are on the streets. So we need to do a better job. And that's what we didn't do. We just thought we could lock people up and then kick them back out on the streets and go, sure, that'll work, right? No, that's poking hope. That's just like going, well, we hope it works. And then we're all surprised when recidivism rates are 75% because we put them right back into the same environment, most of the time hooked on the same drugs they were using when they got arrested, but we didn't provide them any way to, to, to free themselves from it. And you know, for my Republican friends, if that makes me sound like you know some wild-eyed liberal, fine. But look around you. you know, we made mistakes, we went way too far with some of the sentencing. The hardest part of it was we've never have been committed to treatment in this country, ever. We just haven't. one more question while we were talking I was curious like you guys have storefronts in your company so let's say we pass legalization like what does that look like then you have a medical section or is it all together or you know there's been a lot of discussion about that do we have different sides we've talked about it we have from the standpoint of being very committed to preserving the medical program we feel that there is a way that we could either do it on separate sides of the building, whatever it takes, making sure there are set-asides, looking at some of those THC levels. But yeah, I don't, we don't see a problem. We've looked at a lot of different scenarios. I think it was Colorado, Megan, that said they actually have it divided. There's a counter for medical 
and account for recreational. And I don't think the bills have specifically said that we had to do that, but we're prepared to do it. I think what everybody in the medical program is committed to is, is preserving this program and doing whatever it takes to make sure that that happens. I think it's worth noting that even though Darren White is pretty open about his previous views and why they changed, there's still plenty of people who look at Darren and Pure Life with a pretty cynical lens. Yeah, I guess it's probably hard for some people to see his view change as anything but money-driven, which probably makes him somewhat of a controversial figure in the cannabis community. Right, and we can't talk about controversial people without bringing up this guy. New Mexico may have had an early start in adopting the Lynn and Aaron Compassionate Youth Act. New Mexico had the opportunity to probably be a leader in this country when it comes to cannabis science, when it comes to cannabis medicine, when it comes to cannabis industry in total. That's Duke Rodriguez, president and CEO of cannabis producer Ultra Health. Rodriguez is also a former human services secretary of New Mexico. And I, and I served under Governor Gary Johnson. Uh, one of the things that Gary was most known for is he actually advocated before Colorado adopted legalization that New Mexico should consider it. I think if had Gary been successful, today you would see New Mexico being far more the powerhouse in the Southwest, probably benefiting the experience you saw happened in Denver and Colorado in general, and probably surpassing Arizona in cannabis. But we dropped the ball again, and so we kind of lagged. We definitely heard Duke's name a lot while doing interviews for this podcast. Yeah, he's really made a name for himself in the industry here in New Mexico. There's a long list of court cases that Ultra Health filed against the state in the past several years, but a lot of those cases resulted in some big changes to the state's medical cannabis program. One notable change was a big increase in how many plants producers can have at any given time. So how many are they allowed to have now? The state allows producers to have up to 1,750 plants. There are some specifics about mature plants versus seedlings, but for simplicity's sake, it's 1750. But up until last year, that number was 450, and that change came after a judge's ruling in response to a petition filed by Ultra Health. And actually, Rodriguez said even that new plant cap for producers is not enough. I think plant caps and the attempt to allocate plants is an archaic system that most states have walked away from. There is no plant count in Arizona. There is no plant count in Nevada. There is no plant count in Oklahoma. There essentially is no plant count in Colorado. So for all surrounding states and probably most of the country that have medical systems or adult use programs, there is no such thing as a plant cap. The plant cap in New Mexico is a item of the past primarily tied to the Susana Martinez administration of believing that this was illicit drug dealing somehow become legal. Remember, we had a former governor in New Mexico who campaigned on the belief that she would eliminate the medical cannabis program. So it, it steeped very deeply within even the current operators within the Department of Health, their former Tina's appointees. So it's hard to kind of break that historical bond to believing that there's some value, some sort of harm reduction by keeping a plant cap. But if you look at logically other states, plant caps don't exist. We allow a certain level of capitalism if you have the resources to build a bigger greenhouse than Ultra Health, we don't object to it. We don't think that small producers should be limited to their hopes and dreams. We don't think large producers, everyone should compete with whatever the investments they want to make in this industry. So a plant cap 
does nothing else than try to level the playing field, but in fact, what it does, it limits the playing field and it actually costs patients more. So in the end, to us, no plant cap. If you want a plant cap because it makes you feel like you're going to have a limit and no one's going to grow a gazillion plants, which is never going to happen, you're never going to grow more plants than what you can offer to grow and support the market with. Why would you throw resources, water, people, buildings at something that's never going to be sold? There is a natural ceiling. But rather than have bureaucrats determine what that ceiling is, let the marketplace, let the consumer decide what that ceiling should be. Andy, in a story you wrote earlier this year, you referred to Rodriguez as a perpetual thorn in the side of the Department of Health. Yeah, he arguably is. There seems to be an ongoing fundamental disagreement between the department and UltraHealth. Here's Dominic Zerlo, the director of the medical cannabis program, explaining the department's reasoning for the current plant cap. So basically what happened was there had been some controversy over the last several years about there not being enough product for patients. So there not being enough medical cannabis available. And so what ended up happening is there was a lawsuit that occurred. And on the basis of that, what the department had done, had done an emergency order, emergency regulation rather, that essentially put the plant limits temporarily at 2,500 plants per producer. Now that plant count was just done as a stopgap measure. In the meantime, what happened is the department um, contracted to do a study to see what the needs of patients were with regard to adequate supply. And on the basis of the results of that study with what producers were growing and what patients needed in order to meet that supply, that adequate supply level, was it was determined that having a 1,750 plant count was going to meet those needs plus allow for the additional growth as the program continues to grow, which the program has continued to grow with regard to patient count. That's really where that 1750 came from. It does also take into account the fact that patients can apply for their own license, for a personal production license, to grow their own medication. And we work a lot with patients who are trying to do that process, who are trying to apply, and those numbers continue to also increase. And so I'm actually very proud of the fact that we've not only been able to increase the plant count, we've been able to offer better services towards patients with regard to their application process, and we've definitely increased how much supply is actually out in the community. Andy, I can't help but wonder if this whole industry is just a big boys club. I think that's a fair assessment. There are women in the industry, but they don't always make the headlines. As a woman, it's been challenging. I never experienced misogyny and sexism and prejudice until I entered this industry. I was a mountaineer and a rock climber in an all-male environment. I was a skydiver worked in healthcare, worked for FDNY as a paramedic in New York. That's Rachel Spiegel, the CEO of the cannabis producer, the Verdes Foundation. It wasn't until I stepped into cannabis that I really started to understand the conversations that were happening around the country and the world as to how women are treated in industries. It's been challenging and it is, it's changed me. It's changed me so much that now I'm working on finding my authentic self again and what it means to be feminine and be strong as, as a feminine leader in a very masculine environment. And I think women are particularly valuable when it comes to social responsibility. 
we are good business leaders when it comes to creating equitable jobs and understanding what it means to create an environment for our employees that is about the whole person and really takes into account a work-life balance that's sustainable. So I think we're good for business and I think we're really good for an emerging industry like cannabis that has come from prohibition. I look forward to continuing to be part of a voice uh, of positive change. I just was curious if you could say a little bit more about you know, the kind of misogyny that you encountered entering the industry and kind of what that looked like. It's um, complimenting me for being a bitch, challenging environments. It's, it's judging me for being a bitch and using, you know, that language very casually. And, and again, on both sides as a compliment and as a criticism, having men think that they need to stand next to me during my presentations to our association, having individuals comment on my physical looks constantly and um, proposition me sexually. It's everything. It's all encompassing. And just to reiterate, we did not attempt to speak with the owners or principals of every cannabis-based company in New Mexico, but we did chat with Ben Lewinger, the director of the New Mexico Cannabis Chamber of Commerce. New Mexico benefits from being very diverse and kind of looking like what a lot of the rest of the country is going to look like in 20 years. Unfortunately, that's not represented across the cannabis industry. The chamber has really uh, espoused and, and at every point made an effort to make the cannabis industry one that is accessible for everyday New Mexicans. It's accessible for everybody uh, across the state. There are some lessons there for what other states have done correctly and what other states have, have not done correctly. If you look at California, where they wrote into statute that people of color, women of color, were going to have funding set aside for them to start their cannabis business, it was a huge failure. The funding never happened. So what you have is groups of people who were expecting and, and relying on these supports who were then left out to dry even, even more so than before. New Mexico in general, across industries, does a good job of having the industry represent what the state looks like as a whole. And I would be lying if I, if I said that cannabis didn't have a way to go. That's one of the key focuses of, of the chamber is to, to making sure that the industry reflects and signals back to what the state looks like. But there's still one major roadblock to diversity in this industry, which is that it's basically impossible to get a production license right now. Here's Medical Cannabis Program Director Dominic Zerlo again. So right now, the state is not actually issuing additional licenses. There's not a cap per se, but it is a process, not quite an RFP or a request for proposal process, but very similar, where when the licensures do get opened up, what happens is the applicants apply, they have to complete their forms, they have to submit all the documents that are required, such as background checks for employees, their plans and procedures and policies of how they're going to keep the patient safe when the patients come into a dispensary, for example, how they're going to keep the medication safe when it's being grown, manufactured, all of those types of things. They have to submit those and then they're reviewed. And then out of that process, those that have the highest scores, essentially, or have the best proposals are the ones that will end up getting licensed. But part of that will also depend on 
the projections of how the program is growing, what the needs of the patients will be. And so at this point right now, with the new plant counts, we are seeing enough of a supply. And so at this point, we haven't opened those particular licenses. Now, with that said, there are other areas of the industry. It's not all just about the cultivation and production. There's also manufacturing where organizations and companies are turning around and taking the cannabis and creating the variety of products that patients need and want. Those manufacturing licenses are open. So manufacturers can apply or individuals who want to be manufacturers. The laboratory licensure is also open. So organizations and labs that want to be doing the testing that we have coming up can also apply for it. We also opened up the courier applications, which has been extremely important during the COVID-19 situation because that really allows for there to be even less interaction between the patient and then other people because instead of having to go to a dispensary, they can actually have it delivered to their home. And we've always had couriers, but we also with this current situation said we need to increase that. And so we have. This is probably a good time to mention that while people could potentially get a manufacturer's license, that is, a company who makes extracts and edibles, the law does not allow manufacturers to grow their own cannabis, which means manufacturers who do not have a license to grow can only get plant material from producers. And Duke told us he's actually in favor of the program opening up more licenses. In New Mexico, there's been an active debate about more licenses. It might surprise folks that we actually strongly support more licenses being issued. If some New Mexican wants to be in, as you call the industry, and you want to participate on a lower lower scale and be more what we call craft cannabis, I think there's a place for you. Uh, the problem is New Mexico sets such a high price tag for those plants. If you subscribe to 1,750 plants, that fee is 180,000. If you even try to stay less than 500 plants, that fee alone is 45, 50,000. So the numbers are important because I don't think a lot of mom and pop operators out there can afford not to pay 40, 50 or 180,000 one time. It's every year. And that kind of fee is unheard of when it comes to if you decided to open up a, a restaurant or a animal grooming, pet grooming kind of facility. The fees to get into this industry are extremely high and extremely prohibitive. So it's not only just the number of licenses, it's the regulatory environment that we've created to allow people to participate in this industry. And so there's also a kind of a workaround for management companies, right? Somebody that holds, we, we talked to Dominic Zerlo about this, that a management company can hold more than one license essentially. And, and so can you explain how that is sort of a workaround? Well, rather than being more open and allowing to those to take on the amount of challenge they want, the number of plants, the number of locations, we become restrictive. And so we've created this workaround, as you called it, which is probably the proper term. You, you have to find a, 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 and I hate to call it this, a, a weak colleague, a weak brother in this industry, a weak sister. And you've got to approach them and you've got to offer them a package to say, clearly you desire to be in this industry. You don't have the resources to be in the industry. I will bear the risk. I will grow for you, I will open locations for you, and I will hire the people and put out the capital so that you can be more successful. 
And so these smaller operators are almost caught up in a position of having to lend, lease, uh, loan, kind of offer their licenses to someone else to stretch those licenses out. The, the operator who acquires them needs the plants, needs the ability to support their growing operation, and so they kind of have to enter into some relationship. Probably not the most efficient way to expand an industry, but pretty much the only way we're allowed to kind of stretch the limits of what we have today. I'll try and add some context here. Part of the original Lynn and Aaron Compassionate Use Act mandated that medical cannabis producers had to be a nonprofit entity. The term is Licensed Nonprofit Producer, or LNPP for short. A few years back, a handful of these LNPPs figured out that you could start a management company to oversee multiple LNPPs. So what Duke's talking about is essentially when a producer gives up their license, either voluntarily or by the Department of Health, there's often a management company ready to take over that license. That means one management company could possibly have more than one license? Yeah, and it's become pretty commonplace and widely accepted by the Department of Health. Beyond that, there seem to be some concerns that some of these larger companies, specifically the management companies, may have an unfair advantage in a post-legalization world. Here's Dominic Zerlo with the medical cannabis program again. The producers themselves can only have one license, but a management company could potentially have more than one. That is based on the license, and we currently do have 34 licenses that are active. You do have those different producers can actually grow up to however many plants that they've requested in their licensing each year. Now, we are about to hit the relicensing period, which happens this summer. And so we do anticipate that the number of plants that producers are growing and that they're licensed for will increase. Growing Forward is a collaboration between New Mexico PBS and New Mexico Political Report, thanks to a grant from the New Mexico Local News Fund. Our producers are Kevin McDonald and Bryce Dix. Our music is from Poddington Bear and Christian Bjorklund. Join us next week when we take a step back to look at what we know about the cannabis plant and its effects. Discerning cannabis is an art form that's been relegated to small, cloistered groups of people who really, really loved the plant, really loved consuming it and picking up all the elements apart. Be sure to subscribe to Growing Forward wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get caught up on all of the episodes so far by heading to nmpbs.org and searching for Growing Forward.